Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. Amen. You can have a seat where you are. You got a copy of Scripture. We're going to be in First uh, Kings chapter 3. Uh, this is our next to last week in uh, this series, In Search of a King. We spent the last about three and a half months looking at uh, the kingship of uh, Saul, David, and finally uh, we're going to move into Solomon uh, and what we can learn from that. It's been such an incredible uh, series for us so far, and we're going to jump into Solomon's rule and his kingship uh, today. I um, want to remind you, if you've got kids, uh, next on uh, August 7th, for our Back to School Bash, you do not want to miss that. It's going to be a great time. We'll get a chance in our service to pray over them. They've got amazing things planned in their kids' ministry. And then after service, we've got lunch for you all. Uh, and We've got water inflatables for the kids uh, to enjoy and hang out. It'll be a chance for us to celebrate the end of the summer, beginning of the school year. This is a great chance and opportunity for you to invite someone uh, that you've been wanting to invite and bring to TriStar. So mark it August 7th. Uh, we'd love for you to join us. Free lunch for everybody. Body, water inflatables, great things for the kids. It'll be a great time for us uh, just to hang out, get to know each other better, and celebrate uh, the beginning of a new school year. Solomon, uh, as we talked last week, became the king in David's place. He was the last of Solomon's uh, 20 sons that were born to him, uh, which is unusual for the final child to be named the king, uh, but uh, he did so. Um, and what we see is that no other king, I would venture to say in all of history, has had a better start than Solomon did. Most kings, when they begin their reign and their rule, are dealing with, they took the, uh, the throne forcefully. So most of them are starting at ground zero. They've got to build a name for themselves. They have to build a, a treasure chest for themselves. They have to prove themselves on the battlefield. And Solomon had to do none of this because of who his father was. Because his father was David, the gold standard of kings in Israel, he leapt off the shoulders of his father. He had his father's legacy. He had his father's accomplishments, which all gave uh, uh, credit and credence to his name as the king. He had the looks of a king. He came uh, from a kingly line. And God was about to give him far more than he ever wished or desired for. What Solomon lacked, God was going to provide. First Kings chapter 3 verse 3 tells us that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. We see that David was fa or Solomon was faithful to God just like his father. He's going to begin walking in the right pathway. He listened and heard his father's instructions. If you are faithful to walk with God, he's going to bless you and he's going to be with you. And so he follows that advice and he begins his reign well. It doesn't stay here and we'll talk more about that the next time we gather together. Uh, but Solomon begins well. 
well. And the beginning of Solomon's reign teaches us some truths about God that are important for us to understand today. They were important for Solomon to understand, but they're also important for us thousands of years later for us to understand. So this morning, we're going to unpack a couple of these truths that Solomon shows us about who God is. Now Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 finds himself at Gibeon. Uh, he has laid down for the evening. He has went to bed. And in verse 5 of chapter 3, it says that the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Basically, God tells Solomon, you can ask me for anything in the world. It's in this dream. You can, you can ask me for anything. Solomon, what do you want? What would you ask me to bless you with and to give you? Nothing is off limits. As I read through this, for me, there was like this moment of jealousy, right? Like if I could just have this moment with God, right? If I could just have this one-on-one with God and God say, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. Man, what an incredible moment. And yet the Holy Spirit reminded me in that you have that access 24-7, seven days a week, every single day. Through the Holy Spirit through the redemption of Jesus on the cross for you. You have access to your heavenly Father and he wants to pour out his blessings on you. You can ask him for anything he wants to give to you. And so God says to Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon responds in verse six. He says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. He says, David was great. You've been so faithful to my father. I watched it firsthand. And so now, Lord my God, you have made me your servant, king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. David is way older than a little child here. This is kind of a poetic way of him saying, I don't really understand what I'm doing. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the knowledge to be king. You've made me king, but I don't know everything I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to handle this situation or that situation when it's thrown at my doorstep. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. He said, there's so many people in Israel and I don't know what I am doing. I'm striving to follow you. I'm striving to be like my father David. My problem is I just don't know what to do. And this is a difficult task leading your people. There's lots of them if you haven't noticed. And they're complainers. They have problems. Verse 9, so he says to God, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon does not go before God, and he does not ask him for all the wealth in the world. Solomon does not go before God and say, Make me the most powerful king to have ever walked the earth. He goes before God, And he says, give me wisdom so that I can lead your people well. Because I can't do it on my own. 
And church, if we're just honest, that, 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 that attitude of Solomon is where we ought to find ourselves every single day. God, I can't do this on my own. I need your wisdom. Would you pour your wisdom out on me to be the wife or the husband that I need to be? Would you pour your wisdom out on me to be the parent and to, to, to uh, discipline and to raise my children in the way that I ought to be? God, I don't know how to handle myself at work and how to deal with the things that are coming my way. I need your wisdom. Would you pour it out on me. And God is pleased with Solomon's request. And God says, I'm not just going to give you wisdom. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. And so God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to give you wisdom that you have requested of me. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before you and none like you shall arise after. You're going to be the wisest man to ever walk the planet, Solomon. No one has ever been as wise as you will be and no one will ever be wiser than you who will be born after you. But I also give you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statues and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God is so pleased with Solomon. He doesn't stop with wisdom. He pours out riches and wealth on him. These gifts that God gives him are going to be a benefit to him a little bit later in his life as he steps out to do what God has called him to do. But he also makes a covenant with Solomon that I will make your life longer here on earth. I will extend the days of your life if you will follow me. He makes a conditional covenant with Solomon. If you'll be faithful to follow me and walk in my commandments, I will lengthen your days here on this earth and I will give you more time to lead my people. And Solomon learned an important truth about God that day, one that we ought to understand as well, and that is this, that God desires to bless us far beyond what we can think or ask for. I don't think our minds can fully comprehend. Even Solomon's mind could not fully comprehend what God was capable of giving him. And so he comes before God and, and he asks without fully understanding the power and the, the, the ability of God to give to him. And we are guilty of the same. We come before, how often do we come before God with our requests, not fully understanding who he is and what God is capable of? It would be like us walking into uh, a meeting with Elon Musk at his request, right? The richest man in the world worth, I believe, somewhere over $270 billion. Just let that sink into your mind. $270 billion. And him coming to you and saying, hey, I know, you know, you need a new car. What kind of car would you like? And us walking in and going, you know what? I think a, a Kia Soul would do, right? <laughs> No offense if you've got a Kia Soul, but this is like Elon Musk. He could buy you the entire Kia, uh, or Kia Corporation, and it wouldn't even, like, it, that would be chump change to him. 
Well, that'd be us walking in and making that request. But this is God. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Nothing is too impossible for him. We're not serving a limited God. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, he has the power to bless us far beyond what we could ever think for or ask him for. And this is what Solomon experiences firsthand. Matthew 7.11 says, If you then who are evil If you and I who are sinful and broken humans know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You have a heavenly Father who wants to bless you. You have a heavenly Father who wants to give you the desires of your heart. If we would just ask. He wants to give to us. He wants to bless us with good gifts. And we see this in Solomon. And so Solomon wakes up from this dream. And God demonstrates that he's granted Solomon's request because immediately Solomon is encountered by these two women who have an argument. They are uh, prostitutes, Scripture tells us, and both of them have conceived a child and they have given birth to a child at the same time. They find themselves sleeping in the same room, one mother in this bed with her child next to her, the other mother in this bed with her child next to her, except for one mother rolls over on her child in the middle of the night and kills her child. She wakes up and realizes that her child is dead. And she freaks out, wondering what to do. And she sees the other woman in sleep with her child alive next to her. So she takes her child over and she swaps the babies, taking the living child back to her bed, leaving the dead child in the bed with the mother. When the other mother wakes up, she rolls over. She sees her child is dead. And she looks at it and realizes, this is not my child, right? And she immediately freaks out. She sees that her child is with the other woman. This argument breaks out between the two of them, and they go to Solomon, and they ask him to intervene. And Solomon immediately, in the wisdom that God had given him, said, bring me a sword. Someone bring me a sword, and we're going to take the baby, and we're going to split the baby in half, and we'll give each mother a half of the child. And immediately the true mother fell to her knees and began to weep before Solomon, begging him not to do it, begging him to give the child to the other woman, even though she was not his mother, that her child would live. And Solomon said, this is the true mother. He was wise. He understood what to do in the situation. And his uh, his story begins to get out, right? Everyone begins to hear of how Solomon settled this dispute and how wise he was, how amazing. I mean, just think about how incredible it was on the spot to come up with the wisdom needed to solve the situation. 1 Kings 3.28 says, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of King Solomon because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Israel was in love with their new king. You thought they loved David. Look at Solomon. Wow, he is incredible. He's so wise. There's no other king like him. He is so wise that all the other nations are taking note, and they're becoming obsessed with Solomon. They're coming to Solomon to settle their disputes. Even some uh, uh, historical books say that animals would come to Solomon to settle their disputes. I don't think it's true, but they said that's how wise he was. 
And it leads to this time of prosperity in Israel. 1 Kings 4, 20 through 21 says that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, and they ate and they drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his lives. Times could not be better for Solomon. He was wise. There was peace in the land. There was prosperity in Israel. But it is important to note, if you, if you don't understand what's going on here, if you don't know the rest of the story, you would think that what they are experiencing in Israel is because of Solomon. And that's not true. It wasn't completely Solomon's responsibility for the peace and the prosperity they were experiencing. Much of what they were experiencing as a nation was because of David's faithfulness to walk with God for years before Solomon came onto the picture. Solomon reaped the reward of David's faithfulness to God. It was not just that Israel was impressed with Solomon. The whole world began to take notice of what was going on. Look at this kingdom, this ragtag group of people who are now a prosperous, peaceful nation that are, is a powerful force in our area, in our region. Look at the wisdom of their king. And Solomon says, it's now time to turn my attention to something that my father has longed to do for many, many years. 1 Kings 5, 3 through 5 Solomon says, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There's peace in the land. There's no fighting. There's no war. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to my David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Remember, David was not allowed to build the temple. He wanted to build the temple for God. But God said, you can't. You've got blood on your hands. You've been in too many battles. You fought too many people. There's too much death and destruction as a result of your hands. But he promises David that his son Solomon will build the temple for him. And so Solomon realizes this is the perfect opportunity. There's peace in Israel. I'm the wisest king that has ever lived. We've got wealth beyond what we could have ever imagined. Now is the perfect time to begin to build the temple for God. And what is amazing is that such an, a, a massive building project could not be tackled in a time of war. Your men are too busy. They're out fighting the Philistines. They're out fighting the Amalekites. They're fighting their enemies. They don't have time to build a temple. And for years, David had fought enemy after enemy to ensure a time of peace so that his son Solomon and Israel could build this temple. And so Solomon chooses to honor his father's desire by turning his attention inward and saying, let's build the temple. And so he begins to work relationships that his father had established many years ago to get the materials necessary to build the temple. He reaches out to a man named Hiram, who is a political ally of David. He loved King David because of his faithfulness to God, to walk with God. Hiram was the king over an area that had the cedars of Lebanon. These are massive trees that are sought by nations from all over the world at this time because of their strength and stability. 
They're desired to be used to build huge structures. And so Solomon sends word to him, I'm going to build the temple, but I need, I need trees from your forest. Would you supply them? And Hiram, who had been influenced by the heart of David, agrees to do so. 1 Kings 5 through 12 says, The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. And it is here Solomon learns another truth about who God is that we too need to understand, and that is this, is that God will equip us with the resources needed to accomplish what he has called us to do. See, the temple couldn't be built in a time of war. So what did God do? He gave them peace. The temple could not be built without construction materials. Where are you going to get all the construction materials you needed? What did Solomon do? He realized that his father had already made political allies with all the people that he needed to get the construction materials from. God gives Solomon the allies needed to get the supplies. But he also gives Solomon the wealth to pay for it. Remember when Solomon asked God for wisdom to lead his people, what did God also bless him with? Wealth beyond compare. He has the money now to be able to pay for all the resources it was going to take to build the temple. The temple could not be built without skill and knowledge of construction and wisdom to lead people. And so what does God bless Solomon with? Wisdom beyond his years and his ability. God gave Solomon everything that he needed for the work God was calling him to accomplish. And the same is true today. God will equip you for what he has called you to do. Whether the Lord is calling you to be a faithful mom or father to your children, he will equip you with the resources needed to do that. Whether he's calling you to be a faithful teacher, to pour into the hearts and minds of children that surround you, God will give you the resources that you need to do that. Whether God's calling you to be a faithful businessman and to build his kingdom through that, whatever resources you need to do what God has called you to do, God is going to give them to you. He will not leave you high and dry. And maybe you sit there and you go, but hey, that's for important people, not me. Paul says different. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the news for you and me this morning. God has good works that he's created for you to accomplish that nobody else can accomplish. The person sitting to your left can't accomplish it. The person sitting to your right or behind you or in front of you, they can't accomplish it. Only you can because according to Paul, God prepared you to do it. God has good works prepared in advance for you to do to build his kingdom. And Hebrews 13, 20 says that he will equip you with every good thing that you need to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is going to give you what you need to do the work he has called you to do. He's never going to call you to a task without empowering you with the resources necessary to accomplish it. It's what he did for Solomon, and it's what he's continued to do for thousands upon thousands of years to faithful men and women who are willing to follow in obedience in accordance to the plans that God has for their life. 
So Solomon drafts 193,000 men to work on the temple. Just let that just kind of settle into your spirit. Like this is a massive, massive building project. Almost 200,000 men are involved in building the first temple called Solomon's Temple, if you're familiar with the history of Israel. It takes them the next seven years of their life working full-time to build this temple. Now you see a picture of why this can't happen during wartime. It can only happen during a time of peace because all these men would not have been available. And so in chapter 6, Solomon finishes the temple, and it is a glorious sight to behold. At its tallest point, it is over 20 stories tall. It is massive. I think there's a recreation of what this would have looked like um, back then. At this tallest point of the dome would have been over 20 stories tall. Just think about what it took to pull something of that magnitude off at this time and age where you don't have cranes, you don't have all the modern technology that we have. The ceilings inside were over 50 foot tall. Everything was overlaid with gold. If you look at this next uh, picture, this is inside the main room. This is what uh, a a recreation of what this would have looked like inside with uh, the tables for the showbread, the lamps with the candles that would have been left uh, burning, representing the presence of God. Inward, you see the Holy of Holies there where uh, the Ark of the Covenant would have been kept. This would have been a glorious uh, sight to behold. Imagine where your senses would go walking in to this building, and every bit of it is designed to reflect the glory and the majesty and the worth of the God of Israel. And so God has an interesting interaction here with Solomon that gives us a little bit more uh, uh, light on another truth about who God is and how he interacts with us. First Kings 6.11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building for me. If you will walk in my statues and obey my rules and keep all my, all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to, your, uh, to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people. The third truth is this, is that God has always had a covenant with his people. What is a covenant? A covenant is basically like a contract. God says, listen, David, if you are Solomon, if you will walk in my ways, if Israel, my people, will walk in my ways, then I will make a promise to you to bless your nation, to be with this nation. A covenant is simply a contract. It establishes like the basis of a relationship, the conditions for the relationship. There are promises and conditions of the relationship and consequences if those conditions are unmet. Today, we we don't really call it a covenant anymore. We kind of call it a contract. Right here, uh, if you're familiar with uh, ever purchasing a home, uh, this is the contract between me and my bank for me to be able to live in my house. This is a covenant that I made with a bank for the next 20-something years of my life, right? And it spells out, if you ever bought a home, you're going to sign your name about 300 times in this document. There's probably a couple hundred pages in here. And it spells out how much money that you owe the bank, how you, how you have to pay it, when you have to pay it, by the consequence if you don't pay it. This is a conditional covenant between my bank and I in order for me to get the reward of my home. 
We're familiar with this. Why is understanding a covenant so important? Covenants are the framework for understanding the biblical story. The Bible unfolds, we see this, that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, and covenant-fulfilling God. God throughout history has always established covenants with different people, and these covenants are the way that God brings about his redemptive plan. And so there are two main kind of covenants in Scripture. The first is this, a conditional covenant. It's an agreement between two people and two parties that require certain terms to be met. My covenant with my bank is a conditional covenant. I have to pay the mortgage every single month. What's going to happen if I don't pay that, uh, that, that, uh, that mortgage? I'm going to get an eviction notice, and they're going to repossess my house, and they're going to take it, and I'll lose whatever money I've already paid them, right? It's conditional. There are terms that have to be met if I want to have that house in the long run. That's a conditional covenant. If the terms are met, there's a favorable result. If terms are not met, it's unfavorable. Here, God is making a conditional covenant with Solomon. Look at this beautiful house you built me. It's amazing. And Solomon, listen, I'll inhabit this house. I'll be with you. I'll bless Israel, and I will, I will be faithful to her. But this is what you have to do. You and Israel have to walk with me. It's conditional. You have a part you have to play. It's a conditional covenant. And what we see over and over and over with Israel is that they fail time and time again to keep their end of their covenant with God. There's a second kind of covenant in Scripture. It's called an unconditional covenant. It's an agreement between two parties where there are no stipulations of any kind for the fulfillment of the agreement. It's sometimes called a covenant of grace or a grant. An unconditional covenant's agreement by both parties is not necessary, right? One party says, I'm going to act this way towards you regardless of what you do. Regardless of how you treat me, this is how I'm going to act. If you remember way back with Abraham, when uh, uh, God makes a covenant with him to make his descendants as numerous as this, uh, uh, the, uh, the stars in the sky, right? Remember that? Or the... That was an unconditional covenant. It didn't matter what Abraham did. It didn't matter how he acted. He couldn't stop it from happening. It was an unconditional covenant between he and God. And until Jesus arrived in Israel, their covenant with God was always conditional. There were terms and conditions. They had to be faithful to God if they wanted God's blessing and his favor to fall on them. If they wanted God's presence to be with them, they had to be faithful to walk with him in obedience. They had to obey the Levitical law that was laid out for them. And when they broke that law, they had certain things they had to do to pay a price to make an amends for their sins and their disobedience. But when Jesus showed up, he brought about a new covenant. A covenant that is unconditional. A covenant that is a promise of redemption to you and a promise of redemption to me from the consequences of sin if we would just believe in Jesus and confess him as our Lord. And it's unconditional because it's based on what Jesus did on the cross for you and I. 
And there's nothing you and I can do to earn it. And there's nothing you and I can do that can take it away. It's a free gift from God. And now we have the freedom of walking with God and enjoying his presence because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus on the cross, not because of how good of a job we do in following him in obedience. But if we're honest, here's the problem for most of us. When we think about God, we still slip back into a conditional covenant with him. We still slip back and think that we're in the Old Testament time. Where if I want God to bless me, I've got to be faithful to him. I've got to do everything right. If I mess up, if I do something wrong, God's just going to turn his back on me and he's going to abandon me. That is not the covenant you have with God. If you have confessed Jesus as your Savior, if you have recognized that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and you've asked him to forgive you of your sins, you have unconditionally been forgiven of every sin that you could ever commit. And when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son, not your sin anymore. And God is with you all the time. You have a relationship with him regardless of what you do and how faithful you are and how good you are at being obedient to him. Does that mean that you're not going to face consequences for your sin? No, you're still going to face consequences. But God is always going to be with you. It's an unconditional covenant. And my prayer is that we would walk in that freedom, that we would stop walking in the vicious cycles of the old covenant. It doesn't work. Israel proved the point. For years after year after year after year, Israel strived to live according to the law. They couldn't do it. So God gave us a better covenant, an unconditional one made by God to you regardless of your faithfulness to him. And 1 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, God will remain faithful for he cannot deny himself. You have a faithful God who loves you unconditionally. And my prayer is that we would walk in that freedom. That we would see that is who our God is. Jesus, we come to you this morning. And we acknowledge that our mind at times can be a battle zone with the enemy. How often he attacks us in our thoughts about you and who you are and how you see us. And I pray this morning that we would hold tightly to the truth that you're a God who wants to bless us with good things. That you're not a God who's in heaven waiting for an opportunity just to pour out wrath on us. You've already poured out every ounce of your wrath on Jesus on the cross. It's been satisfied. 
would we remember that you have called us to good works and the works that you've called us to do that you've prepared for us, God, that you will equip us with what we need to do that, just like you did with Solomon. would we remember that you have a covenant with us? Fortunately for us, it is a covenant that's not based on our works and what we do to earn favor with you. It's a covenant based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so I pray right now in this room that if there is someone here in this room who has not yet accepted the gift of salvation that only Jesus can give them, I pray right now that you would bring their heart to repentance, that they would confess Jesus as Lord, that they would believe in their heart that he is your son and that he died on the cross in their place and that he was raised from the dead to give them life. Would they confess that this morning? Would they walk into freedom that only Jesus can give them. For the rest of us, God, we struggle day after day to walk in the freedom of Jesus. We get caught in the vicious cycle thinking that somehow your love for us is conditional and it trips us up and it slows us down we're going to make mistakes and we're going to blow it we're going to step in stupid time and time again when we do would you remind us that in that moment you love us the same as you did before we stepped into it. And you'll love us the same the next time we step into it. Because you've already forgiven it. You've already punished it on the cross, on your son Jesus' shoulders, who stood in our place. So may we walk in the freedom and the life that he gives us. May we not be restrained and held back. see life and hope and freedom in us and be drawn to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.